Welcome to the Biblical Significance of Christmas podcast, sponsored by Reformation Heritage Books. I'm Dr. Tavis Bollinger, Director of Media at Reformation Heritage Books, the sponsor of this podcast. The five episodes in this podcast include a series of sermons preached by the prolific author, pastor, theologian, professor, J.V. Fesco, on questions related to the birth of Christ. Fesco's most recent book, The Birth of Christ, is organized around five chapters covering central themes in the Christmas story, including Mary's famous Magnificat, the actual birth of Christ, the phrase, O come Emmanuel, the role of the Magi, and the prayer of Simeon. We hope you enjoy the series of expositions on the biblical significance of Christmas and invite you to get a copy of J.V. Fesco's book, The Birth of Christ, from our website at www.heritagebooks.org. Luke chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 8 through 21. So Luke chapter 2, let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer before we hear the preaching of the word. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would open our ears, that you would open our eyes, and that through the eyes of faith that we would be able to perceive the Lord Jesus clearly, that you would unstop our ears, that you would enable us to hear his word to us, that in hearing the word of the gospel, we would rejoice in it, and that we would give thanks to you, our triune God, for this wonderful gift of your grace and mercy. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, I think we can definitely say that the birth of Christ is undoubtedly a cultural icon, at least within the West. I can remember a colleague of mine telling me that he had been walking past a department store window in a major city. And as he walked by the window, it was during Christmas time, he saw a manger scene. And there in the manger scene uh, was the, the, the picture, in a sense, of what we just read, where you had uh, the baby, you had Mary and Joseph, you had uh, the shepherds, and you had the wise men, and you had the seven dwarves. In other words, it has become such a cultural icon that many in this country see no difference between what we believe and what we know to be true and real about the announcement of the birth of our Savior, and they have mixed it in with other cultural icons. In many respects, robbing it of its significance, robbing it of its truthfulness and of its importance. And so I wonder how often, how many of us, perhaps as we think about the birth of Christ, particularly at this time of year, uh, allow certain cultural understandings of the significance of the birth of Christ to seep into our minds and perhaps to distort the picture so that we can see the picture of the birth of Christ in our minds. We can understand its significance, but because of these cultural distortions, we begin to lose the edges of the portrait. We begin to lose some of the finer details so that we don't quite as clearly perceive the truth that we hear read this evening. I think one of the telltale signs of this is how we can perceive and understand and think about the significance here of the angels that appear in this passage. In our culture, angels have taken on a significant interest for people. If you think about just in the recent past, say in the past 20 to 30 years, how many times angels appear within the popular culture. There was a 1994 Disney movie, Angels in the Outfield. There was a popular TV show that ended in 2003, so about maybe 16 years ago, touched by an angel with Roma Downey and Della Reese, and they constantly went about supposedly improving people's lives. There was a 1998 movie with Nicolas Cage, City of Angels. There was a 1996 movie, John Travolta as Michael the Angel. Billy Graham wrote a book about angels and large in part these were uh, stories where angels I think in one sense seem to be somewhat domesticated they did uh, interesting things they did sometimes miraculous things but they didn't quite inspire the reaction that we find here in the chapter before us in Luke uh, chapter 2 moreover when you think about say the artistic portrayal of angels they're often depicted as small infants of a certain girth. You know, they're they're somewhat chubby babies with wings. Well, I think if we pay closer attention actually to what the Bible has to say about angels, and in particular what our passage here has us this evening, I think that it can shine some much-needed light and help us to understand the significance of the birth of Christ. And what it means for us and how important it is as we reflect upon uh, this tremendous gift that we have received in the 
salvation that comes through our Savior and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want us to do this evening is to reflect upon the birth of Christ, but chiefly by considering the role that the angels played in the announcement of his birth. So I want us to think first about the significance of angels, because when we sweep away all the cultural interpretations, the cultural, uh, I think, wonderings and the cultural imagination, the Bible gives us a bit of a different picture about angels and the purpose that they serve within God's unfolding plan of redemption. Secondly, I want us to reflect upon the message that the angels herald to the shepherds and why it was so important and significant. And then third and finally, the shepherd's response to the message that the angels proclaimed on that evening. So what does the Bible have to say about angels? There's a sense in which I wish that uh, we could completely eliminate the word from our vocabulary. Not the idea, but the word. Because of all of the negative and distorted cultural assumptions that come along with that word angel. If I say angel, we might think winged uh, human being. We might think small infant with wings. But yet, angel is simply the transliteration of the word in the Greek New Testament that has translated the Old Testament word for messenger. Messenger. And I think that that's important because we certainly see the angels here giving the shepherds a message. And in fact, The prophet Malachi, that is the Hebrew word for messenger. That is the Hebrew word that we would recognize as angel. In other words, Malachi simply means my messenger. And so here the angels were ultimately God's messengers in the Old Testament as well as in the New. And if we think about what it is that the angels have done throughout redemptive history, we begin to see that the culture really has not understood how they function and what God has ordained them to do. Angels preceded the destruction of Sodom in Genesis chapter 19. They appeared to Abraham to herald a message of judgment. Not exactly the fat infants with wings that we have come to know. They preceded the Israelites on the exodus as well as in the conquest of the land. The psalmist in Psalm 78 verse 49 speaks of companies of destroying angels. It was the angel of the Lord that struck down 185,000 Assyrians. We read of that in Isaiah chapter 37. And in the book of Revelation, where their angels abound on the pages of that book, the angels herald the seven trumpets of judgment against the unbelieving world, as well as in Revelation chapter 8 and then Revelation chapter 16, they pour out God's wrath upon the earth. So we can see very quickly that if we scan the sweep of redemptive history, that God's messengers, this angelic host, they are often used by God to be the heralds of his judgment upon the earth. They also frequently incited fear 
and trembling in those to whom they appeared. Think of Balaam. Balaam was riding his donkey. And then all of a sudden the angel appeared and the donkey could see it and Balaam couldn't. And the donkey stopped. The donkey was fearful. And then once the angel revealed himself to Balaam, Balaam was fearful. Think of the apostle John as he was writing the book of Revelation as God had given him these visions. And an angel came to him in Revelation chapter 19. And he was so fearful that he fell at the feet of the angel to worship him because he believed that he was in the presence of the divine. And blessedly, the angel said, no, rise, I'm a fellow servant with you. I can remember in school when I was in kindergarten. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't in kindergarten, second grade. And I remember one of the teachers came into the classroom, and I'm not exactly sure as to why the teacher told us this, but the teacher told us of an experience when he encountered an angel beneath his bed. And as I've thought about that particular testimony from my teacher, I would want to go back and I would want to ask my teacher, did you fall on your face? Did you tremble with fear? Because I suspect we're an angel to be manifest here today in our very midst. All of us would be scared out of our minds. That's how amazingly fantastic these angels are in their appearance. Moreover, if we were to consider the role that they have played in redemptive history, that they were not merely heralds of good news, but that they could also be heralds of bad news and of judgment, we might be worried to wonder whether or not the angel would be a bearer of good or bad news. I think in this respect, these angels are very much fearsome creatures. And I think this explains the reason as to why the shepherds were fearful. I don't think that the shepherds were country rubes who didn't understand the significance of what it was that they were seeing. I don't think that they were uh, poorly educated and they were just simply scared because they saw bright lights. I think they knew what it was that they were beholding. They were beholding messengers of the Almighty. I suspect that they understood their role within the scope of redemptive history, that they could announce messages of judgment. I suspect that for these shepherds, the history of Israel was inscribed upon their memories, and they were aware of the judgment of the angel of the Lord as he struck down 185,000 Assyrians. And so when we read in verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. They didn't know what would happen. They were scared out of their minds. They were scared, I suspect, because the glory of the angel was significant. It was tremendous. There's a sense in which we could say it was quite literally out of this world. They were fearful because of the awareness that they had of the role that the angels played announcing judgment at times. 
But we can also say that angels typically appear for significant events in redemptive history. We might even say seismic events when there are tectonic shifts in the very fabric of redemptive history as massive plates move and shift, changing the very geography of history itself. And so I think in this respect, we can say that the presence of the angelic host as they were making this significant announcement isn't simply the stuff of great special effects. It isn't simply cosmic pageantry, but rather their presence was signaling a massive shift in redemptive history. That something of the greatest significance was unfolding in their midst. And hence, they were appearing to announce a very important event. I think if you look back in the Old Testament, most of the angelic appearances are small numbers. An angel here, an angel there. I think it's fair to say never before in redemptive history do you see an entire host of angels appearing to make such an announcement. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. They were making this announcement because it was of the greatest significance. We could literally say it was the most important announcement that the world has ever known. Which brings us to our second point, which is the message that the angels heralded. In spite of their fear-inducing presence, the angels blessedly didn't bring a message of destruction, a message of judgment, as they did against Sodom and Gomorrah, or as they did against the Assyrians, but rather they brought good news. Verses 10 and 11 say, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. What a sense of assurance that here the angels bring this word of peace to them. Here the shepherds undoubtedly were scared. They were frightened. They were terrified. And yet the angels tell them, it's okay. We bring a message of joy. We bring a message of hope. And they announce the birth of the Messiah. I mean, think about how long you might wait for something. There's a sense in which the faithful of Israel had been waiting for a thousand generations. 
Ever since God had promised to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so now they were finally beholding that message. They announced the birth of the Messiah, the the Messiah of Psalm 2. The one that God would install upon his holy hill. I suspect it's difficult for us to be able to imagine something of that magnitude because so often in our lives, we don't necessarily wait for something that long. You know, I took my kids to see us, the, the final Star Wars installment yesterday. 42 years in the making. Now, I can't tell you that I've been waiting on pins and needles for that story to unfold for the last 42 years. But as the movies have been released, I've, you know, uh, joyfully said, okay, let me go and check this one out and see what it's all about. But that I would say is perhaps the closest thing in my life that I could say that I've ever waited for a really long time. But imagine for generation after generation, as faithful Israelites would look expectantly to the horizon of history, wondering, would this be the year? Would this be the day? Would this be the time when God would finally announce the advent of the Messiah? He who is to be born in the city of David, announcing the fact that this was David's long-awaited son which ultimately confirmed his royal lineage. No earthly king had ever received any type of royal heavenly announcement like the birth of this king. But as magnificent as this announcement is, as we can imagine that the skies were simply replete with this host of angels, Heralding the announcement, the birth of the son of David, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of God in the flesh. That it was at the same time, not only marked by this great glory, but that it was also marked by great irony. Great humility. They said that they would find the child wrapped in swaddling cloths. Not the vestments of royalty, not the garments of magnificence, but simply cloths. Jesus was born and not placed in a plush cradle fit for royalty, but he was placed in a feeding trough for animals. Now, I'm a city boy. I don't know, or I should say suburban boy. I don't know much about slopping animals. But I suspect that a feeding trough isn't necessarily the most sanitary of uh, devices. And nevertheless, here's where the king of kings and the lord of lords lies as an infant in an animal's feeding trough. Moreover, as glorious as this heavenly host was... The angels announced their, his birth to the lowest class of people in Israel, to shepherds. Many people in Israel in this point considered shepherds thieves. They were a class of thieves because why? They would let their animals graze on other people's property and eat the grass and eat uh, the green plants, if you will, of whatever happened to be on somebody else's property. 
They were despised and often considered dishonorable because they were far from home and they were unable to protect their families. They were unable to protect their homes. This was the cultural perception of shepherds. And I suspect you lay lay down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. You spend time with sheep, you're going to probably smell like them. These folks were at the lowest rung of Israelite society. And yet, this is the group to whom God chose to reveal the announcement of the birth of his son. I think in this glorious and splendorous announcement, one where the angels filled the heavens as they heralded this wonderful birth of Christ, the fact that they were announcing it to the lowest of the lowest begins to signal that Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, was coming to redeem the lowest of the lowest. That he was coming to save those who were under God's judgment, those who were deserving of his condemnation and wrath, And that this king was going to bow and to stoop to the lowest of levels to be able to accomplish this wonderful work of redemption. Here the angelic host announced glory to God in the highest in verse 14. On earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now the message that they were heralding was not one that you see and hear at this particular time of year. The whole idea of world peace. Don't get me wrong, I'm no fan of conflict. And it would be nice if we could have, in some sort of fashion, world peace. But that's not the message that the angels herald. Rather, our greatest need in this life is peace. But not just simply peace with one another, but ultimately peace with God. That is our biggest problem, is that sinful human beings are not at peace with God. We are at enmity with him. And he with us, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, by nature, we are children of wrath. Think back to the Old Testament, and particularly to the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. And make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This was the greatest and the chief hope of the faithful of Israel. That the peace of God would be upon them and that they would behold it in the face of God. What is the Christian parent's greatest responsibility? To teach their children to trust the one true living God. Enrich your family devotions from the Family Worship Bible Guide. This precious book offers rich devotional thoughts for children of all ages on every chapter in the Bible. To learn more about the Family Worship Bible Guide, visit heritagebooks.org.
And this is precisely what Christ was going to bring. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the angels were heralding. They were heralding nothing less than the gospel of peace. That which brings us peace with God, knowing that his wrath no longer rests upon us. Knowing that our hearts are no longer filled with enmity towards him. Because God has poured out his grace by condescending to us in the person of his son. Emmanuel, God with us. The son who was lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. But notice here that God's peace rests not universally upon all. But upon those with whom he is pleased. According to God's sovereign dispensation of his grace. According to his will, not ours. Which brings us to the third and final point, which is the shepherd's response. Take note of the shepherd's immediate response there in verse 16. And they went with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. I think the shepherds immediately knew the grand meaning of everything that had just been unveiled to them through the angels. As these angels heralded to them the birth of Christ. And they were so eager that they immediately wanted to go. They immediately wanted to go and find this baby who was the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. And moreover, they did not merely gawk or idly observe. You know, I think that's one of the things that that bothers me about some nativity scenes is that the, the shepherds just seem to be standing by. It's difficult to capture what the biblical text gives us if we're just looking at a picture because it says in verse 20 that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Their hearts were moved to worship. Their hearts were filled with joy. They knew they had peace with God because of the birth of this child. They worshiped the one true living God and gave thanks for the fulfillment of these long-awaited promises and prophecies that forever had been given to the people of God and now had come to fruition in the birth of their Savior. They recognized that they would only have peace with God through the Messiah, and so thus they sought shelter beneath the wings of this infant king. Now, this is not to say necessarily that they understood every single facet and aspect of how it is that this infant king would bring about their redemption. But I think they knew without a shadow of a doubt that this was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The angelic host had confirmed it to them because they knew that this had never happened before. I don't think that they understood that the tiny hands of this child 
would one day have nails driven through them. I don't think that they yet understood that upon this infant and upon this infant's brow that he would one day have a crown of thorns thrust upon it. I don't think that they understood that those small ears would one day have contempt, blasphemy, and hatred poured into them. And I don't think that they completely understood that these infant eyes would watch the crowds gather about him at his feet to mock and to ridicule him as he hung upon the cross. But I think they understood on that night, on that night of nights, that they beheld God in the flesh. They beheld their Savior. They beheld the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that they above anybody else would have asked the question, why, oh God, did you see it fit in your mercy to announce to us the lowliest of people the birth of your son? Why were we invited to the shower? Beloved in Christ, I hope that that is something that rests firmly in our hearts this evening. That while we ourselves are not firsthand eyewitnesses to the angelic host, nevertheless, remember the words of Christ. Blessed are you for those, for you have believed and seen. But blessed are those who have not seen and who have nevertheless believed. In other words, God has visited us in his grace and in his mercy as he has announced the birth of his son to us as we read it on the pages of Holy Writ. And I pray and hope that our response would undoubtedly be one of joy and thanksgiving. That that message of hope the peace that comes only through Christ and through the redemption that he brings would rest in our hearts and that it would give us hope in the face of hopelessness, that it would give us assurance in the face of doubt, that we would rest assured that on the final and last day when we behold the face of Christ, that we will look upon the face of God when he rests his countenance upon us and that we will know without any question that we have received his peace, the peace that only comes through Christ. You see, the angels that were present there that evening signaled this massive event in redemptive history the incarnation of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the birth of our long-awaited Savior. This announcement that they brought is nothing less than the hope of the gospel. And thus, this time of year, as our culture is filled with that Christmas season, my hope and prayer for all of us this evening 
is that we would not lose sight of what it is that the gospel brings to us. That ultimately the message of Christmas is one of salvation. And that the presence of the angels would signify to us and would remind us of the absolute joy and of the absolute glory of that evening. And that it would be one that resonates in our hearts even today. And that in the end, it calls for nothing less than our wholehearted worship and praise for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for this wonderful and most costly gift that we have ever received. And that's one that will bless us for all of the rest of our days. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for this great and costly gift that you have given us in your son. And we ask, O oh Lord, that as we reflect upon it this evening, that we would recognize the significance of these events. That the presence of the angels were magnificent as they heralded the birth of your son, God in the flesh. And even though, O oh Lord, we are removed from the events of that evening by some 2,000 years. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would press these truths deep within our hearts and that they would be just as much alive to us this evening as they were to the shepherds on that evening so long ago. We pray that though we have not seen with our eyes, that we would nevertheless see with the eyes of our faith and that we would behold the birth of your son. He who has brought us peace with you. He who has brought us joy, the joy of the gospel. And he who has filled our hearts with hope. Fill our hearts, we pray, with praise and worship for you, our triune God, for this wonderful gift of salvation. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to All of Life for God by Reformation Heritage Books. If you have enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. Reformation Heritage Books is a nonprofit ministry aiming to strengthen the church through Reformed, Puritan, and experiential literature. To learn more about this ministry and how to support us, please visit rhb.org dot o-r-g